The Funambulist Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, Muslim French and the Contradiction of Secularism with Mayanti Fernando. Hello everyone, uh, we are here in the Phenomenalist office uh, with a member of the team, Flora Ergon, who's been uh, helping me preparing this conversation with uh, Mayanti Fernando, who's an associate professor in anthropology at University of California in Santa Cruz, as well as the author of the book The Republic Unsettled, uh, Muslim, French and the Contradictions of Secularism, published in 2014 by Duke University Press. Uh, hello, Mayanti. Hello, thank you for having me. No, thank you for taking the time during your Paris stay uh, to talk with us uh, in our office. Uh, and uh, we are going to talk about your work uh, in particular around that book I just uh, cited. Mm -hmm. But maybe before we do so, could you tell us uh, what you're currently working on? Sure. Um, I have two projects going on right now. The first is uh, France-related as well, um, which is a project on the regulation of immigrant and migrant intimacies. Um, essentially by the French state, so the way in which uh, binational couples and marriages between French nationals and non-nationals are heavily surveilled by the state, um, and the way in which that essentially means that the state sort of uh, crosses the boundary into the private and intimate sphere of, of the marriage, essentially of kind of intimate life, private life, in order to verify that a marriage is not a fraud. Um, and so I'm interested in the whole discourse around mariage blanc, mariage gris. And essentially, the question I'm really asking in some ways is what, for the French state, constitutes a real marriage? And what are the signs of a real marriage? What are the signs of love, essentially? And then, you know, how does one measure love? What are the signs? Um, because couples have to produce all kinds of things, like postcards to each other, you know, love letters. Um, all of these sort of... <laughs> these It ends up becoming a kind of... Um, a, a, a sort of depository. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a dossier that you construct to prove, in fact, that you know this is about love and not some kind of uh, fraudulent contract, or you know, you're not you're not marrying for the wrong reasons, sort of thing. Um, and so, I'm really interested in this question of of you know what constitutes fraud um, in the eyes of the state, and then what constitutes love, and how do you prove that? Um, And so, because it's sort of a bottomless pit, you can't, it, it, it's almost as if, you know, it's like trying to, when, when the moment someone asks, do you really love me, then the relationship in some ways is over because you can never actually prove it. And there's a similar way in which the French state by saying, you know, is this really love? There's a way in which couples kind of, it, it's a, it's an impossible demand in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, that's one of the projects I'm working on. Um, and then the other is this much more kind of fluid project right now around, the emergence of um, what's being called the new animism and interest in the new animism and in certain sort of indigenous ontologies. And I'm sort of interested in the figure of the indigenous animist um, for a number of uh, a number of scholars, really, but also just a kind of general sort of um, secular progressive population that seems to be looking for some kind of redemption in the time of Uh, you know, the crisis of capitalism and the Anthropocene and seems to have found it in this figure of the of the indigenous um, animist. So I'm sort of interested in the relationship between the rise of, of what's being, what, you know, what I'm calling the new animism 
um, and the interest in the new animism and uh, what that might actually tell us about secularism and secularity in the contemporary period and mm-hmm. thinking about religion and what, what, what religion means now. Mm-hmm. Well, and I suppose that's the sort of topic we'll uh, touch upon in uh, just a minute. But before we do so, and maybe talking a little bit about your methodology, uh, in an interview that I, that I heard from you, you explained that uh, working on a topic uh, with which you did not have any personal tie uh, was a political gesture aiming at decolonizing anthropology. Could you, could you possibly elaborate on that? Yeah, the question, I did a, an interview, sort of another podcast where I was asked um, just about how I came to this topic. And it was, I gave a kind of a circuitous answer um, because it was a circuitous route. But essentially, um, yeah, I came to the topic of France, Islam, secularism without really having any personal stakes um, in any of those topics, in any of those subjects. And, um, and in some ways for me, and I... I mean, it was slight, you know, I'm saying this in a slightly polemical way, but, but it was important for me to, um, to think about what it meant to decolonize anthropology. And I had a professor, Michel Rolf Trouillot, uh, who, um, who basically said to me, you know, because I had, I had, sorry, let me, let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I had originally wanted to work, I went to grad school thinking I would either work on um, Islam and Muslims in Britain South Asian Muslims in Britain, or on Sri Lanka, which is where I'm from. And, uh, you know, my professor Trio basically said to me, this is sort of the general move in anthropology now, which is that um, anthropologists of color work on, you know, themselves, in quotation marks, right? Uh, and there's a way in which we really have to turn the gaze back to the West, um, but we have to sort of do so in a way that basically... The, the, the mode of decolonizing, one of the ways of, of fully decolonizing anthropology is when people of color, when anthropologists of color essentially make the same move that white anthropologists have been making for, you know, centuries <laughs> at this point, which is to show up somewhere with no ties mm-hmm. and start working on that place, right? And no one says, you know, some, some white anthropologist working on Papua New Guinea, no one sort of says, oh, like, why did you come to, you know, why, did you, why are you working on Papua New Guinea, right? It's sort of as if there should be some kind of personal tie, which is the question that I always get. Why, why are you working on France? And the people who ask me that question are often looking for some kind of way to link me personally to the question of Islam and secularism in France. Um, and there is none. And so for me, you know, it was sort of, it wasn't just that, obviously. It was just something that really interested me, and there were all kinds of other intellectual and personal reasons, you know, how I ended up here. Um, but that was one of the, that was one of the key motivations for me was, was a, to kind of do, uh, what my other white colleagues, you know, in graduate school did very easily, which was literally just find a place and work on it. Um, but also for me, it was important to turn the gaze back on the West as a non-white post-colonial anthropologist. Mm. Um, so if we now really dive into uh, the works that you've been uh, assembling in uh, in the Republic Unsettled, um, we can see how in the last 15 years the uh, notion of secularism, or uh, or even to be even more specific, we usually use uh, the French notion of laïcité, mm-hmm. which is even more specific uh, to the French context, but so this laicity as defined by the 1905 legislation that strictly separates religious institutions from the state, 
uh, how this uh, notion has been dubious, dubiously interpreted and instrumentalized in formation of structural Islamophobia. Uh, so we could perhaps talk about nationalism in this context, but I think that would suppose that French Muslims are exter external to the citizenry if we would you insist on this notion. And something that you, you actually point out uh, with uh, the oxymoronic phrases that are usually used uh, in, in the French context, like third-generation immigrants, right. which is... <laughs> which, right. which is a very commonplace in in French language, but doesn't make any. I mean, it's very grotesque uh, if we think about it. Right. But so so maybe rather than nationalism, we we might want to talk about republicanism. And uh, and uh, I'd I'd be interested to hear you speak about how this violent process operates through the those principles of secularism and perhaps universalism as well. That's a huge question. Yeah, I, I will try to I'll try to I'll try to answer it in in different parts. The yeah. first is that I I want to sort of um I want to be a little bit more precise or at least I want to I want to push against this idea that the 1905 law was a strict separation of the religious and the political because part of what I argue in the book is that is a couple of things. One is that the 1905 law was able to uh be what it what it is in some ways to enact an ostensible strict separation between church and state, between religion and politics, in part because of a centuries-long process of the transformation of Catholicism, Protestantism, and Judaism already. So the state had, before 1905, undertaken a fairly um, state-heavy process of transforming these different traditions, especially Judaism, mm -hmm. but also Catholicism and Protestantism too. The second thing I would say, though, is that the 1905 law is not, in fact, a strict separation of religion and politics. And I know that the French love to have this idea that somehow laicite is very special and it is a strict separation in a way that you know, one doesn't find in other countries. But in fact, the 1905 law, as a lot of I mean, historians and, and other scholars will tell you, um, and I'm not the only one saying this, is, uh, was in fact a compromise in a lot of ways um, with the Catholic Church. And in, in being a compromise with the Catholic Church, there are all kinds of ways in which religion and politics are actually imbricated in the very, in the very law, right, the 1905 law. So you have, first of all, it was never applied. It was an, it's actually never been applied in SS Moselle. So there's an entire yeah. region of France in which the 1905 law does not apply, where church and state are not even discursively separated, um, legally separated. And then the second thing I would say is that um, there are all kinds of exceptions built into the 1905 law. So any religious edifice built before 1905, um, the state pays for its maintenance, right? That's mostly Catholic churches. Uh, um, there's a way the, the state pays for, um, you know, the, the state pays the salaries of um, hospital and prison uh, clergy, for example, Catholic, Protestant, and now Muslim as well. Um, so there's all kinds of there are all kinds of exemptions built into the law itself, um, and then the other thing too is that the 19 there were a series of laws after 1905 that also um, enable this this uh, invocation I would say of the religious and the political. So for example, I mean you probably both know this, but the state subsidizes um, a lot of private. Catholic schools, right? Mm -hmm. Again, private religious schools, most of them are Catholic. So there's a way in which this idea of a strict separation is actually a little bit of a myth, um, both in the law itself and in the fact that the law wasn't applied in Alsace-Moselle, nor was it applied in Algeria, which at the time obviously was still three departments of France, right? 
Um, so that's the first thing I would say is that one of the things that I think we have to come to terms with is that um, is that secularism is not so much the separation. And, and this, is not some, this is not to say that somehow the 1905 law isn't really secular, but rather to say that we have to think about secularism, of which laicite is a part, we have to think about secularism and laicite not so much as a separation of the religious and the political, but rather the regulation of the religious by the state, which is what you see in the 1905 law. Mm. Um, so that's the sort of first thing, and that's part of the argument about secularism that I'm trying to make. The second part of your question, I think, was about the relationship between nationalism, secularism, republicanism. And I think that there is certainly a way in which you find um, a much more identitarian laicite in the present moment than you did, you know, even 20 years ago, mm. right? Um, and that there, and there certainly is a way in which um, the, well, certainly the extreme right has suddenly embraced, you know, secularism as somehow this, this French, um, this French national, uh, you know, identity. Um, but I think it would be part of the argument that I'm trying to make is that uh, and I, I see why politically it's really important to to hold on to the law of 1905 as somehow the law that enabled a kind of neutrality before religion rather than the deeply Islamophobic idea of laicite that we find now. Um, I'm not sure that, the sep- that that kind of neat periodization actually really works. Um, I completely agree that this is a, a kind of identitarian laicite, uh, but I think, you know, there's a way in which I would argue that what we're seeing in some ways is the is the deep discomfort with and regulation of Islam in the present moment um, that actually looks quite similar to what you see in the moment of Jewish emancipation centuries ago. Uh, and there's a way in which the state can now be neutral towards its Jewish population precisely because... Judaism has undergone such a transformation in the post-emancipation period. Um, and I think that there's, it might be interesting to think about what's happening now as a similar kind of process with regard to Islam, one that began well, you know, well, I mean, 150 years ago in the colonial period in, in Algeria. If that make, does that make sense as a, I mean, you can, you can push back against that idea, but... No, no, absolutely not. Uh, I, th- I think I... I... I would not dare. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but you know, there's this. I mean, there's this interesting discussion about about what about the about nouvelle laicite and the laicite historique, mm-hmm. which I think is is really politically important and politically effective because it enables progressives to say, you know, what you're proposing right now, like the the law on the niqab, even, mm-hmm. um, and even actually the law, the 2004 law banning you know conspicuous religious signs in public schools are a deviation from the 1905 law. They are a deviation from the 1905 law. I completely agree. But there's a way in which the 1905 law also wasn't really thinking about um, the about France's Muslim population. Mm-hmm. As I said, it was never applied in Algeria, right? And so there's a way in which I'm not entirely convinced that there is somehow this this kind of strict periodization between the 1905 law that was all about neutrality and somehow, you know, the nouvelle laicite, which is about, which is Islamophobic. It is Islamophobic, but I'm not sure that had there been a population of metropolitan Muslims in France pre-1905, you wouldn't have seen the same kind of deeply Islamophobic secularism Mm -hmm. that then would have produced the kind of 1905 law with regard to to Islam as well, once once the threat had in some sense been, you know, neutralized so that then the state could be neutral toward Muslims. Mm -hmm. 
perhaps the only thing that I would like um, uh, listeners who are not necessarily familiarized with uh, French politics, mm -hmm. uh, at least contemporary ones, uh, to really understand is that you were talking about the far right, but we're, we're talking about pretty much the entire political spectrum at that point who actually or I mean not everyone that is in French involved in French politics but every parties today have their sort of representative of a very aggressive form of secularism absolutely which very paradoxically does the exact opposite thing of what it tends to be which is not to mix uh, the state and, and uh, absolutely yeah it, yes I think that's right but I think um, what's That's in some ways, I think that's partly my point is that what you see is a mixing of the religious and the political here um, and, a, and a kind of desire for and practice of a radical regulation of Islam and of Muslims by the state. Um, what's interesting is that that is what one saw in the in the kind of emancipation and, and just post emancipation period as well. Um, with regard to Jews, mm -hmm. including an obsession with their, you know, with what they wore and what they ate and what they did, you know, in temple, in synagogues, right? Um, and the sort of the the figure of the of the Jew who needed to be integrated, who needed to be assimilated, precisely by separating in the Jew himself, you know, re the religious and the political, and sort of the modernization of of Judaism, right? And you you hear the same kinds of things now, um, and you heard them then too with regard to Islam, but you keep hearing them now. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I think you're absolutely right that it is not just the extreme right that has this this kind of attitude of regulation uh, toward Islam and Muslims. But that, to me at least, is not entirely surprising, given the tradition of what secularism has been in France. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I'm trying to, yeah. to get at. That this is not actually something new. The, the, the sort of target population may be new in the metropole right now, Um, but the way that it's being, you know, the, the kind of discourses and practices that you see now, the, 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 um, the deep regulation, that as a form of secularism is not new. Mm -hmm. And you, you point out to this, uh, to this other particular uh, uh, contradiction of secularism, uh, to, to use the subtitle of your, of your book, mm -hmm. in the fact that to make Islam secular, the state needs to be involved in, 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 the, in, exactly. in producing a sort of institutionalization. Exactly, in producing Islam. a sort of Islam de France, so, yeah. right, and that kind of proper Muslim subject who will learn to separate the religious and the political, right? But that Muslim subject, that proper Muslim subject who knows how to separate the religion and the political is produced precisely by the state getting involved in the business of, of turning this religion into a so-called proper religion, mm. basically. Right, that's, that's the paradox of, of laicite. Um, so in the book, you also operate a change in the way uh, the claims of uh, French Muslims, or Muslim French, as you, as you call them, mm -hmm. uh, make from the usual right to difference, usually claimed by minorities in various societies, to the right to indifference, that would normalize the community uh, amid the French society. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that in the recent years, the political struggle led by young Muslims and other anti-racist activists has been rather insisting on the right to difference, inspired by historical and contemporary political movements in North America. And um, would you agree to say that one of the problems might be that both difference and indifference uh, refer to a part of the citizenry that is considered as a norm, And so insist on 
the differential aspect to begin with? Yeah, yeah. I think what I was trying to get at. So the the right to indifference was a phrase that one of my um, one of my friends used when I was it was just during, during an interview with him. We were talking, and I was saying something about the right to difference, and he stopped me and he said, "No, no, no. I don't. We don't want the right to difference. Um, we want the right to indifference. On veut pas le droit à la différence. On veut le droit à l'indifférence." And I didn't immediately understand what he was saying, and it took me a little while to sort of really suss it out. But um, it became an interesting way to think about the kinds of claims being made um, by these people that I'm calling Muslim French, i.e. Muslim citizens, citizens of France who are who are Muslim. Um, and, who, and I was working mostly with people who would understand themselves as practicing Muslims. Um, and so... Yeah, I think you're right that there's a way in which the right to difference has been the way in which both scholars, um, but also politicians and activists themselves, have often claimed their um, their rights as citizens and as residents, but especially as citizens. Um, but what I was trying to think through was the way in which that very framework, as you said, um, addresses itself to a normative majority mm-hmm. and, and in some ways reinscribes the normative majority as the site of non-difference and the non-normative minority as a site of difference, which is exactly what this notion of the right to indifference was trying to get out of. Um, and what my, what my interlocutor meant was that he wanted the right to practice Islam publicly, to be you know, publicly Muslim and a citizen at the same time without that being a site of consternation or of him being a, remarkable in any way. And another, someone else said, you know, on veut le droit d'être banal, right? We want the right to just be ordinary. Um, we want people to stop paying attention to us. And, and I think that was more the, the, um, the issue. So it's not so much we want to be indifferent to claiming our rights, but rather we want um, to claim our rights as French citizens without our Islamite being uh, kind of front and center of any debate, essentially, mm-hmm. right? So we want to be et musulman et français, both Muslim and French at the same time, without one of those identities be- being a site of, of any sort of problem in some ways. But the arguments that I was trying to make, and my question was maybe too convoluted for that, but uh, was that even the right to indifference mm-hmm. refer somehow to uh, the sort of white white universalism that France is trying to trying to really very much implement in the fact that it goes again to this sort of uh, what we might call in English uh, colorblind racism in, in the idea that we don't see any difference, we ignore those, so, I, don't you think? I think it could be read that way, but that is definitely not what the person that I was talking to was saying, and it was, it's not what I would say either. It's mm. not, it's not this, it's not to say that there are no differences. It's to say that, um, that, that, uh, the, 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 the polity, France is made up of cross-cutting heterogeneities, um, that, that might read as difference, but the very notion of difference requires non-difference, right? There's a po- there, it's a kind of polar argument here. There's non-difference and difference. And difference is only difference to identity. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas indifference in some ways gets you out of that, of those two poles, because, so it's not to say, it's not a colorblind, it's not colorblind racism to say, like, you know, we don't see race, right? 
it's to say, no, we do see race and it should make no difference as to what people are. Um, but I'm not claiming, it, it's sort of saying, um, it's not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not different. I'm French, right? That's the claim in some ways. So, but it's not, I'm French and I'm not a racialized subject or I'm not Muslim or whatever. Frenchness here actually includes all of those cross-cutting heterogeneous identities of Muslimness, of queerness, of, you know, blackness, of whatever, right? So it's actually a radical reimagining of what France is as a polity that encompasses all of these various kinds of what we might call differences or identities, right? Um, so it's basically a claim to identity without a claim to difference, which I thought was actually an interesting, politically at least, sort of theoretically and politically, an interesting way to go because it, it, it does get you out of this, to me at least, it gets you, um, again, it, th- theoretically out of a notion of majority-minority. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sort of a claim that France is actually this radical heterogeneity of vastly different differences or identities, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, but at least in sort of political theory, it's a way of really decentering a notion of a normative majority. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that racism doesn't exist. It's to say racism shouldn't exist because there actually is no, there's no natural majority, right? There's no, no natural identity and no natural difference. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of a, a radical problematization of the, ont- of the kind of the fixed ontology of difference and identity. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And I think maybe Flora had uh, an additional question to that matter, so that might even yeah. allow us to dig a little bit further. Yeah, I think it's really related because I was about to ask, like, what do you think about, like, given the context today in France, mm-hmm. what do you think about this, like, theoretical thing of indif- right to indifference given the political context today? And, like, because I would say that today in France, maybe the indifference projects could be like instrumentalized to integration project um what do you think about could this plural republic you about mm-hmm. like i think it's what you're saying what do you think to like could it be possible to to talk about that today in france and like yeah no it's a good question being multicultural or like yeah, I think the problem. So for me, the, the problem with multiculturalism is that it continues to recenter a white majority as the mm-hmm. norm, and then there are these, you know, cr- these sort of satellite differences that circle around the center, and the center recognizes various different cultures, and you know, it, it accords various um, rights to these different minorities, but it doesn't actually uh, cut through the notion of a, a majority, a center, a middle, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that was what, at least, I, I read my um, my friend and interlocutor saying was trying to really wrap, like really decenter this idea that there is a center. Um, I think indifference, sure, it could be instrumentalized, um, but it depends on what what the identity in question that is being claimed as a right to indifference would mean. So for my my interlocutor, it was a very publicly Muslim identity that would be very difficult to, to count, you know, for a, mm-hmm. an assimilationist, integrationist Republican project to, to countenance. Um, and I think, 
in some ways, what would be what would be, um, and this is something that I'm, I've been thinking about as well, and, and trying to write about post, you know, after the book, um, is I've been talking about uh, the right to indifference from the state. Mm-hmm. I think what you're increasingly seeing now is our our movements who are also practicing and not just claiming, but practicing a right to indifference to the state and to the majority which is a different kind of proposition too, right? Mm-hmm. So, you you know, movements who just really don't want anything to do with the majority, with the state, with any kind of um, normative center, who are basically saying, you know, we don't, it's not, even, it's not even we're making demands on the state, it's rather we're turning our back completely on the state and on the majority, and we're just going to basically, you can call, you know, I mean, you can call it a retreat into communitarianism or, or whatever, mm-hmm. Um, I don't like to use that term because it's mm. so pejorative in France, communautarisme, um, but a kind of a, a turning, you know, a turning away from the state and, and practicing in some ways an indifference to the state mm. rather than simply claiming indifference from the state, right? Mm. And that's that to me is sort of an interesting, that's really interesting politically, I think. And would you say it's it would be like a back to a right to difference, or it's not the same thing for you? No, because a right to difference remains a, a claiming of a right on the state, mm. right? Okay. So it's the yeah, it's it and you're you know here it's it's no there's no right being mm. claimed. It's actually an indifference that's being practiced, yeah. which is okay. which is much more radical in some ways because it just refuses any kind of game of recognition that the that the state is playing with its mm. minorities, right? It even it it sort of. It, it kind of gets you out of the question of majority-minority, difference-indifference, difference-identity, and just says, you know, we're going to live amongst ourselves and figure this out for ourselves, and we don't really... I don't really want anything to do with anything, you know, anyone or anything that is not very communi- community-based, essentially very communal. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of Republicans and liberals and progressives, you know, freak out um, at, at that. I find it really politically interesting and so that's one of the things I've been thinking about is is that's not what I was talking about in my book in terms of the right to mm-hmm. indifference the right to indifference you know um for, from the state here there's an interesting way in what in in which I think you're maybe increasingly seeing the right to or not even the right the claiming of indifference to the state mm-hmm. which I don't know is, is at least it's it's as someone who is deeply suspicious of the state and of of any kind of state recognition and state regulation because state recognition always means state regulation this is sort of an interest you know in in political theory i think it's an interesting move yeah it certainly is uh, although i i could also see how um there's there's only so much you can do in that indifference in yes. so far as that uh, something as simple as the police being like uh, cu- cutting back on you quite literally right uh, in this sort of uh, in this sort of move, and in general, the sort of subjectivization uh, that can be made of, uh, in particular, in um, in uh, towards French Muslims, I mm-hmm. think, is very very uh, uh, violent. In so far that there's never a sort of you're never you're never one person. You always sort of one person with. Uh, 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 with the sort of burden of of everything right. that is that is all the imaginary and all the structures right. that touches your community. Right. Yeah, no, I call uh, it a burden of representation. I yeah. think Fanon also uses this the sort of burden of representation. Mm. Uh, and something that I find particularly interesting is, is how 
uh, all this structural racism also functions through um, figures of exceptions, figures mm -hmm. of acceptability, and mm -hmm. how, for example, someone like, I mean, something we had talked about with Nasir Aganif Sulamas, but how the, the sort of uh, um, uh, secular uh, Muslim woman, for example, right. would be recognized as a sort of figure of acceptability towards uh, this sort of universalist uh, right. project, right. Uh, in opposition, obviously, proportionally to the violence that is that would be put to a, to a woman, for example, who would be wearing hijab, or that would right. sort of uh, 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 mark her faith in a in a slightly more uh, visible way. Mm -hmm. um, But so I guess what I'm trying to say in that in that sense is that both of those figures are very much uh, the victim of the system. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, the fifth chapter of the book actually is precisely about the figure mm -hmm. of the exceptional citizen. Um, and the and, you know, the, especially in this in this in the contemporary period, it's the secular Muslim woman. Um, and I write about Nipitni Sumis. Um, I don't think that they're as. Uh, kind of visible anymore, um, but there's always been this this sort of ex as you said the exceptional um, or the acceptable exceptional Muslim. Um, there's a way. I mean, what I was trying to get at in the in the book chapter was just the way in which this is an old logic. And so again, you know, it's funny. I'm not a historian, but I'm sort of really interested in these enduring logics of the French Republic. And the, the figure of the exceptional citizen is actually one of them. In the colonial period, it was the évolué, right? And there's a way in which French universalism, Republican universalism, I would argue, actually relies, depends on this figure of the exceptional citizen, the exceptional subject, the évolué, to prove its universality. Because if only white French people could access the values of the Republic, then the claim to universality would fail. Right. So there's a way in which the universalism, the claim to universalism of French republicanism actually depends on, in some ways, the conversion of just a few others to the to universalist republicanism, because otherwise it's revealed for for the sort of the racial. I mean, the kind of the um, the racial uh, premises. Yeah, that it that it entails. Right. Um, and so in that sense, it's actually. French the, the kind of universalist French republicanism is, I think, sort of, it, with that logic, because it's universalist, is actually distinct from, you know, kind of right-wing, uh, you know, uh, Frenchism, or right-wing French nationalism, which doesn't really make any pretension to being universalist. Mm -hmm. It is kind of explicitly racialist, right? R explicitly sort of French, French for the French. French values are French values, not universal values. I mean, they, they may be universal, but they're really only accessible to French. Whereas republicanism actually depends in some ways. It makes a claim beyond France, right? This was the mission civilisatrice. Mm -hmm. um, you can't have a mission civilisatrice if, the, if civilization is always going to fail. Um, so there has to be a kind of mechanism to keep the, the universalism going in some sense. And that, I think, is the figure of the exceptional citizen. So you see it in the colonial period with, and it's mostly male évolué, um, male you know, colonial subjects who access French citizenship um, on a very exceptional basis. Um, and now I think you see it with a, with a, a secular Muslim woman who in some ways proves both the universality of republicanism but also now of secularism, right? So look, Muslims can be secular. Look at these secular Muslim women. There are very few of them, right? I mean, that's the discourse. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a really interesting, I think it's a really interesting sort of figure 
um, that that gets at the heart of the logic of universalism that we were talking about earlier. That is French republicanism. Um, so your book was actually published in 2014, uh, and uh, quite quite a lot of things happened since then. So I, it happens sometimes. Like my first book was published in 2010. I mean, it was written in 2010. Uh-huh. So uh, 2011 being a, a year with many things happening, I can I can I can feel oh. <laughs> I, can, I can feel how sometimes it happens so the, right before an important year. Yeah. But so, for example, we, we're at the time we're speaking. Uh, uh, we're we're in the sixth extension extension of the state of emergency before it it's being transformed into common law. Right. Uh, we um, I mean we have an entire political context that's certainly not radically different from the one you did your research in, but that right. definitely got intensified. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a conclusion, maybe could you could you perhaps tell us what it would sort of change in the way you you did this work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in some ways, and I'm going to sort of take the easy way out, which is in some ways, very little has changed in terms of the kind of structural logics that I'm trying to trace in the book, which I was just talking about. Um, So there's a way, kind of eerie way, in which the analysis remains pertinent, but the players have changed. Mm. So the activists have changed, the politicians have changed, the institutions may have changed, but the the sort of um, structural logic at work is in some ways very much the same with regard to the way that secularism works, with regard to the way that republicanism works. Um, I think that there's a way, I mean, it seems to me that there has been much more, or at least I was going to say there's been a a, a way in which a kind of, and Flora, you were talking about this earlier, a a kind of American um, political activist Mm -hmm. logic and discourse has been taken up. Um, amongst a series of activists here in in France, who you know, Muslim activists, um, uh, kind of decolonial activists, um, black activists, sort of Afro-feminist activists, uh, Islamic feminist activists, um, and so there's a the 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 locus of activism, I think, has shifted in some ways. Um, so you know, when I was here, it was it was in some like there were a lot more debates with these kind of key uh, Islamic thinkers and figures, right? Um, that seems to be less less present in some ways. Um, and the discourse in some ways is much more a- a- about uh, the figure of the racialized Muslim, uh, which I think, you know, is is important to to um, to highlight. That I think is a is certainly a change, and it's not something that I spent a huge amount of time with um, on the book. I have to say, in part because it wasn't as present. Um, so that I think those are the those are the sorts of changes and differences I think I see in terms of. And that's just thinking about the activists in in France. In terms of um, the sh- in terms of politicians and institutions. Um, it's not clear that really that much has changed. Uh, one of the interesting things, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before the podcast, but one of the interesting things about the election, for me at least, was that, um, was that Macron was one of the few politicians in a long time, I mean, probably in the last, you know, at least 15 years, 
who didn't have an explicitly Islamophobic, securitarian discourse, right? We need to crack down on Islam. We need to, um, in the way that Fillon did, in the way that, you know, obviously, Le Pen did, um, but even the way, in, you know, in the way that the sort of Val's Hollande government has also had, right? Um, and so that is an interesting moment. I'm not sure that that actually... I'm not sure that his policies are any different, <laughs> right? But the but the there's been a, a shift in in discourse. Um, I'm that will be interesting to see how that that plays out. I think it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out to have a, a president who who ran a campaign that wasn't kind of explicitly Islamophobic. I'm not saying that the policies are any different, but I, I do think that discourse matters, and so it'll be. I think that will be interesting to track in in the future. All right, so let's let's schedule the next uh, interview in two years to, to talk about that. But, uh, Mayendi, thank you so much for taking the time to be part of uh, what we might want to call actually a, a, a mini-series about uh, maybe um, uh, French politics as seen from uh, from people who might be more connected to the American a Academia. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of the podcast I did with uh, Crystal Murray Fleming and uh, mm -hmm. Mohamed Amadeus Mack. Yep. Uh, so I think that's a great uh, thread to to be following and to get uh, to get a sense of what's going on over here uh, and to have a very sharp and smart analysis of it. Uh, so thank you very much and uh, yeah, let's speak. Uh, let's continue speaking about that then as uh, things turns out. Yeah, thanks for these great questions. <laughs>